0: As I hope many of you know, and I still have a little bit of time, I hope, of grace to to get to know more and more names, but I'm Christopher Mack, uh, the newest pastor here at Vox, and I'm delighted as we begin our homily time to introduce you to a friend of mine who's going to be sharing, Jonathan Davis. Jonathan has held lots of different titles and roles. Uh, I just call him a good friend. But uh, he is going to be with one of our partner churches, Peace of Christ in Williamson County, that is doing the Zaman Gathering and will also be a part of our Good Friday uh, worship. He is going to be their interim worship pastor. He has been a senior pastor. He has held lots of different roles with nonprofits. But the way I first kind of got to know him was in my denominational world, which I won't bore you with, Um, There was uh, some challenges that were happening with a seminary that was really near and dear to uh, Jonathan and which had some connections to uh, the church that I used to be a part of. And Jonathan uh, was a faithful advocate uh, for for justice and goodness and openness uh, throughout that process and really admired and respected uh, all that he did to try uh to align with uh goodness in that instance and ultimately that seminary um came to an end and I love that even in that uh Jonathan and his co-conspirators were not defeated and they are now trying to and well not trying they are beginning a new expression that will be more ecumenical and open and progressive uh and saying that even uh when injustice might seem to win the day it does not ultimately win The story. And so I'm grateful to have Jonathan share with us a bit from his heart this Palm Sunday.
1: Thanks, Christopher.
0: It's an honor
1: to be here and to be with all of you. My son Eli is here also and happy to be here. Hey, Eli. What's up, dude? So um, question for you for discussion just for the next minute. I'm going to set a one minute timer on my phone. Ah, There's a fan. Oh, thanks, buddy. Oh, right. Look at that. It's like an NBA cowboy. It's amazing. All right. Here's Here's a question. Have you ever participated in or witnessed a staged protest against injustice or maybe seen one on the news? And do you remember what the protest was about? So take one minute and turn to your neighbor and just discuss those couple of questions right there. So I don't know many of your names, but if you would, just a few, and this is probably like an extrovert's parlor game, admittedly, um, you could just like shout back to me, um, or maybe not shout because it would startle the person in front of you, but just yell out um, maybe one or two of the protests or injustices that you have been a part of or witnessed in terms of protest. Outstanding. Anti-apartheid in Sydney, Australia. Stop Asian hate rally last year. Black Lives Matter, BLM, sure. Vietnam War. Those are all powerful. And participating in protesting injustice in any of its forms is a powerful and transformative experience if you've had the opportunity to be a part of that. I'll never forget, and many of you will never forget, of course, the year 2020. Not just because of COVID, but the killing of George Floyd. At the time, I was pastoring a church in Virginia, and the nation was crying out in agony for justice. And In the rural congregation I was in, an hour east of Richmond, which was the capital of the former Confederacy, uh, yesterday, by the way, was the anniversary of the surrender at Appomattox, where Lee surrendered to Grant. The national Black Lives Matter movement was gaining traction all over the nation. And in cities and towns across the country, uh, there were BLM protests and movements, but there were also campaigns, um, some here in Texas, but many in the region of the country I was in, to remove the vestiges of the Confederacy, the monuments um, that were in the cities, and famously the Richmond monuments, which are like 50 minutes from where I was pastoring, were removed by the mayor there, Lavar Stoney. And I'll never forget that the week George Floyd was killed was Pentecost Sunday, was the Sunday that followed. And and what I'll never forget about it is the week that this man had his breath literally snuffed out and taken from him, the text for worship in many churches um, that use the lectionary was a text about the Spirit of God breathing the breath of life into the early church in Acts chapter 2. And in our small town, around 200 people came to peacefully protest and march, not only against police brutality, but to demand the removal of the Confederate monument at the town square which was this county seat and our oldest son Eli and I went to support and be in solidarity with people and as allies really to folks in the community allyship in its various forms was at that time becoming very important for me and has become more important for me since and you'll see the picture here Can you guess which child is Eli? You're the only white kid in the pic, dude. No, he has the green sign that says God is love. That's you. So in our rural community, um, this picture appearing on Facebook, unfortunately, led to many people just leaving my church. Because I participated in a BLM, you know, that kind of brouhaha. The passage that we explore this morning in Luke chapter 19 was also a staged protest against injustice and against empire. And you might even be able to imagine that Jesus might have been executed as an outcome for participating in this. And that execution maybe wasn't even the desired outcome. <laughs> It seems strange to me, upon reading the passage, that Jesus requisitions a donkey for his own use. And I used to imagine, like, the detective in the movie whipping out the badge, I need your Ferrari, you know. <laughs> but it was a donkey. And the disciples tell the people, the Lord needs it. The Lord. The word Lord comes from a Greek word, kurios. Curious. Curious. The word Lord or "curios" was often in Jesus' day used to refer to the emperor or other rulers like Herod. It describes one who has supreme authority or one who has authority in a certain realm. Hence, the Roman emperor was called Kyrios because the Roman emperor had authority in the realm of the empire, the realm of economics, the realm of military might. But Poseidon was called Kyrios because Poseidon, the Greek god, the Roman deity, had authority and power over the sea. In Greek culture before imperial Rome, the king of Greece was called Curios, But it was understood that the king of Greece's power derived from authority because the king had the same divine indwelling that all the Greeks had. And so this word Lord has been used in different ways, in different cultures up until the time of Jesus. And so it begs the question for me, if Jesus is Lord, Lord of what? And Lord in what realm? I kind of grate against the word Lord. Confessional preaching moment. Perhaps rightfully so, we may all. In certain ways, masters of slaves were called Lord. Feudal kings who claimed divine rights to absolute authoritarianism were called Lord. The entire pantheon of ancient deities were lords in their particular realm, like Poseidon and Zeus and Ares. So it seems, at least for me, that if I'm going to call Jesus Lord... I might have to wrestle with and overcome some of the objectionable uses of the word. And if Jesus is a different kind of Lord, does he have a different kind of authority? In the passage today in Luke 19, the people began to joyfully praise God as Jesus approached And they hailed Jesus as king, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I remember as a child, my father was a music minister and a worship leader in a number of churches. And on some Palm Sundays... The children in some of the churches I was in would process in at the beginning of the worship, waving palm branches. If you grew up in Christian faith, I see some heads nodding. I, some lived experience may be shared here. So that's one kind of procession. One of the most impressive sights I have ever seen was the presidential motorcade of the United States. That's a picture of it over my shoulder. Eli and I were in Washington, D.C. one day just to see some of the dinosaur bones at one of the Smithsonian Museums, and while we were walking at Triangle Square from the subway tunnel to where the Smithsonian Complex was, a big motorcade came by, and there was no mistaking it, because all of these uh, police vehicles and motorcycles pulled up and stopped everything. And it was apparent that somebody important was about to drive by, and I thought, I wonder if this is the president... And it was. And it seemed like the jet black vehicles in the motorcade went on for a mile, even though it was probably shorter than that. And there were numerous armored vehicles preceding the presidential limousine and more vehicles following the presidential limousine, including Humvees with tactical assault teams, hazmat mitigation vehicles, an electronic countermeasures vehicle that had a swirling satellite on top, a comms vehicle, two press pool vans, and a SWAT team vehicle. And two ambulances, just in case. That doesn't count any of the police vehicles, the squad cars, the ambulances, uh, or the motorbikes. Now, imagine, in the ancient world, a king or a dignitary coming to an ancient city. What that might have looked like. Horses, chariots, foot soldiers, a band... (laughs) And maybe even a crowd that was paid to stand there and go, yay, just to keep up appearances. Theologians Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan write in their book, The Last Week, it was the standard practice of the Roman governors of Judea to be in Jerusalem for major Jewish festivals. They did so not out of empathetic reverence for the religious devotion of their Jewish subjects, but to be in the city in case there was trouble. There often was, especially at Passover, a festival that celebrated the Jewish people's liberation from an earlier empire. Liberation from Egypt. And so as Pilate and his entourage would have entered Jerusalem that week, from Gaza, with a peacekeeping force, there would have been much pomp and circumstance as Pilate attempted to project imperial power and might. He might have come with a thousand troops, ten thousand troops, we don't know how many, but every year, the puppet king of the emperor would come with Troops to keep the peace in Jerusalem. Pax Romana. Peace at the tip of the spear and under threat of death. Isn't that how most empires keep peace, by the way? And so for the number of pilgrims that came during Passover week, which would have been thousands and thousands from all over They would always be on edge and the political leaders and the religious leaders of the day, which were in bed with the political leaders of the day, always feared a revolt. And there was a history of revolt. Judas Maccabee, if you've ever read about the Maccabean revolt, about 450 years before Christ led an uprising where hundreds and hundreds of people died. And he processed into Jerusalem and people put down palm branches for him when he came into town too. And so think of Jesus' staged entry into the city as a counter demonstration, a protest of sorts to the entry of Pilate into the city. Pilate coming from Gaza in the west and Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives in the east. They were literally approaching the city from different sides. Pilate projecting power Jesus displaying humility. Pilate projecting imperial authority. Jesus displaying an alternate reign of peace. Pilate coming to squash a potential rebellion. Jesus coming to restore all things and to bring new life. Pilate protecting the empire for his own benefit and gain. Jesus, dismantling all forms of earthly empire. Pilate, who had the blessing of many religious elites, religious elites begging Jesus to stop because they thought He was a danger to their game. In verse 40, Jesus replies to them, I tell you, if they keep quiet, meaning the crowd, the stones will cry out, the rocks will cry out. This echoes several passages in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. But I believe in this instance, Jesus is referencing the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 2, the Almighty Yahweh speaks To the prophet, and the prophet records these words Woe to you who grossly exploit others for the sake of your own house, building a nest on a height to be safe from the onset of disaster. You contrive to bring shame on your house, making an end of many peoples. You made your own end. The stones will cry out from the wall, and the rafters will answer them. If indeed Jesus is referencing Habakkuk when he is talking to these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they pick up on the reference. And what Jesus is doing is condemning the injustice and the corruption that preys on poor people. He's condemning the injustice and corruption that allies political power and religious power. In his Entering Jerusalem, and with three years of public ministry leading up to this point, Jesus is doing what Borg and Cross in term resisting domination systems. Most empires, political, earthly power classifies as a domination system. And domination systems have three enduring markers, and you can imagine this in our own context in our own world, there are still domination systems that exist, and there will always be domination systems that exist in different ways. But the three enduring markers that Borg and Crossen point out are political oppression, economic exploitation, and religious legitimization. Consider, we live in our own domination system. With LGBTQIA individuals and women and persons of color and immigrants and the poor, among many others, regularly facing political oppression for merely existing. We live in a world where standing up to economic exploitation will get you fired when you try to speak up for yourself and your coworkers. Profits for shareholders and overpriced and overroasted coffee on every street corner, or cheap packages that can be delivered the same day, justifications for taking advantage of the labor and a workforce. We live in a country where civil religion and even Christian nationalism bless oppressive. And exploitative systems as somehow inspired by God. Instead of realizing that Jesus' lordship ushers in an alternate reality where oppression and exploitation and religious corruption cease forever. Some of those ushering in Jesus as king that day that were shouting and singing praises and laying down palm branches, having a party, they likely wanted him to lead a military uprising, just like Judas Maccabee. Others probably participated in Jesus' movement as a form of mocking Pilate. And in a way, Jesus even subverts the expectations of those who are singing his praises. Because he embraced nonviolence. And he embraced peace. Mary Pfeiffer writes, Social change is a million individual acts of kindness. Cultural change is a million subversive acts. Acts of resistance. I wonder how God is calling you, the people of Vox, to usher in both social and cultural change in the name of Jesus. At Christmas, Jesus is celebrated and heralded as the Prince of Peace. And yet again, our world is at war. There's a great art installation outside the Virginia Museum of Fine Art by a black artist called Rumors of War. And it's a huge statue of a black man with dreads riding a horse just about one block from a huge statue of Stonewall Jackson riding a horse. These kinds of dichotomies still exist in our world today. Pilate entering with troops. Jesus riding on a donkey. I wonder if we can separate the claim that Jesus is Lord from all of the colonialism that that word Lord has been attached to in the past, or separate it from the imperialism of Constantinian Empire, or separate it even from the triumphalism of evangelical Christianity. Jesus is Lord. If saying that Jesus is Lord means that Caesar and empire is not, then I'm still willing to embrace Jesus as Lord. If saying Jesus is Lord means embracing the law of love and the way of peace to subvert oppression and exploitation is what I'm called to do, then I'm still willing to embrace Jesus as Lord. And if saying that Jesus is Lord means that powerful men with their fragile egos and their military parades are in fact not God, then I am still willing to embrace Jesus as Lord. And if saying that Jesus is Lord means that people of faith shouldn't sell their souls for political and financial gain, I'm still in. There's a brilliant second wave feminist author, Erica Young, who wrote... You want me to tell you something really subversive? Love is everything it's cracked up to be. That's why people are so cynical about it. It really is worth fighting for. Being brave for. Risking everything for. And the trouble is... If you don't risk anything, you risk even more. Love is subversive. Consider Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem and Pilate parading his troops in a display of military grandeur. Imagine just days later Jesus being executed. Love is subversive. Love is everything. It's worth risking everything. It seems like a powerful thing to remember as we journey into Holy Week. And as we prepare to reflect on the suffering of Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks on this day for the witness of the gospel text to us, which not only tells your story, but in so many ways tells us our own story back. We ask that this day as we continue in worship of you, that your spirit would continue to speak to our hearts as we contemplate and reflect upon what it means to truly follow your way, your way of subversive love and peace. We make our prayer in your name. Amen.